I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together, we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Gary Bain and once more I'm joined by Peter Hart. Well, that'd be quite nice if I was joined by somebody else for a change. It'd be a nice change, wouldn't it, Gary? It would. What are we doing today, Pete? We're doing the South of Cesar's post-war series, which we've been doing and, and I've been finding quite amusing. And it's called Getting Stale and Reawakening. Hello, I'm stale and I'm reawakening and together we're the South Knotts' ours. Yes, well, no, 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 no. Oh, let's be fair, TA units go through phases, don't they? They do. Uh, they rise, Gary. And they fall, Pete. They do, they do. So uh, if there's, and especially if there's a great success, there's a, there's a falling off. Uh, as people, why, why, why do you think there's a falling off? Well, because there's a, a, a reaction as people naturally feel that they've done it and they can relax or even leave in the case of the TA. Yeah, so whoever took over uh, um, from, uh, from from Richmond, Tim Richmond, who was the, uh, the, 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 the battery commander, there's going to be problems. Now, the person who did take over was Major Peter Stone. I like Peter Stone. He took over in May 1985. And in that year, just shortly afterwards, they fell back to second in the King George V Cup. That's we talked about. Have we about. established it's the King George V Cup and not the King George VI Cup, well, as I'm, we've been I, saying? I've no idea, I have to be honest. It's the King George Cup. Oh, it? right, okay. It's not a horse race either, Gary. But that's it, it, what, what is the King George V Cup? Just uh, seeing as we're asking each other questions. Well, it's an artillery uh, competition, isn't it? It's yeah. about who can uh, be most accurate and also quickest in laying down a, a, a range of fire. Yeah, and, and the camouflage gun position. It's sort of a test of gunnery skills. And the OP positions, you yeah. know. Yeah. And they'd won it, hadn't they? Uh, they had. Uh, and now they came second. Um, now, that setback, it could hardly be laid at the door of Peter Stone, could it? But it marked a period of almost inevitable decline, a bit I'd like say. my relationship with you. Yeah, we're in a sort of terminal decline. And this is what Peter Stone said, Major Peter Stone said, uh, a number of the key people in the unit peaked at around that time. A set of officers who were keen and enthusiastic were at their best. A combination of the stage they're at in life, the stage of their training, and Tim Richmond, who actually motivated them to use that. It was certainly a difficult act to follow, but some of these people had passed their peak or were on their way down. <laughs> we know that feeling, don't we, Gary? Other commitments, work or family commitments, were taking their toll. It was just a generation thing. They had been bright young officers. They were becoming less young and more committed elsewhere. It had been a good period, but they were difficult. They were they were difficult standards to maintain. Clearly, under Tim Richmond, that South Knots had done extremely well. So it would have been a brave guy who said, that's not the way we should be going. So I think the priority was really trying to live up to what had gone on in the three years before, which was not the easiest of briefs. And I, I do have a sympathy for him. Yeah, and now Peter Stone, he was uh, another businessman, wasn't he? Yeah. Uh, and he was uh, extremely successful, but he was not a drinker. Were most of them drinkers? Yes. Well, that was part of the attraction, wasn't it? And he didn't fit into the ambience of the officer's mess with quite the ease of his predecessor. What are you saying about Tim Richard then? <laughs> well, he was a bit louder, wasn't he? Yeah. As a quiet man... 
uh, he could easily be caricatured as a sort of spoil sport by the more um, roistery and uh, no one could roister quite like Captain Ian Cunningham of 426 he was a cracking bloke hi hi Ian if you're listening Uh, and this is what he said Mark Fielding and I got into terrible trouble because we'd organised a stripper when we were troop commanders. Peter Stone called us in to say that he was a bit concerned because young soldiers could be a bit frightened by this sort of behaviour. Fielding and I were trying to point out to him that if they were frightened by women taking their clothes off, then they weren't going to be particularly useful when being shot at by the opposition. Peter didn't see that point of view and obviously we didn't see his point on that. Now, funnily enough, Cunningham, Cunningham's, uh, I think, he's a, he's a bright lad. And uh, he may not, he was young then and vigorous and in his prime. But he later grew to appreciate the role played by, uh, by, by, by Peter Stone. And this is what he said, isn't it, Gary? Major Peter Stone was dry, not as humorous as our other battery commanders. He didn't have the style or the drive, but he was an efficient and effective committee man. I realise now, although I probably didn't at the time, that he was probably the ideal man to build on the success that Tim Richmond had achieved. Richmond had driven the battery to a certain level. He took over a good firm base and he consolidated that with his style. Because he was a committee man, it meant he was successful in that he consolidated all the administration. He wasn't afraid to be unpopular and he wasn't afraid to take people on. He also encouraged me and my group of friends to be as warry and as use as many man training days as we could. He was never going to be a field soldier, but he didn't discourage us from being field soldiers. Yeah, and and there are other points of view. Uh, Peter Stone had a he could appear stiff and fussy if you were of mind to think that. I do not think that. Uh, but but he did take time out to encourage young officers uh, didn't he um, and particularly what sort would benefit from a, a person like Peter Stone well people like me the quiet shy ones <laughs> you know people that were taking their time to settle in to what could be a daunting environment and this is second lieutenant Jeremy Higgins of 425 True. a very good friend of ours Gary we both met him on numerous occasions this is what he said Peter Stone was always very good to me. It took quite a lot of time for me to feel comfortable within the South Nazars. I desperately wanted to be part of the team, but I felt that they were very close-knit. Maybe I was just a little bit immature, but I wanted to break in, but I wasn't a brash and lively character that could do that in a big bang. I was waiting, watching, listening and learning, and then I would eventually become part of that team. And Major Peter Stone was quite good at helping and supporting me during that period. I found him to be a very personable, supportive and nice person. I can see you're thinking that I'm a bit like him. I feel that he didn't fit the rest of the officers there. He was quite at a tangent to everybody everybody else. But this is this is an important thing. It, that there is a place in the military for different characters, isn't there? Absolutely. By this time... There was a, a young prospective ne'er-do-well, one Ian Oldershaw, and he'd blossomed into a consummate TA soldier and had steadily risen through the ranks, as I did, uh, to become a... Six times. <laughs> ...to become a Troop Sergeant Major. And this is what Troop Sergeant Major Ian Oldershaw of 426 Troop Aye. says. <laughs> My role as TSM was to look after the whole troop. I'm speaking to him later today. I'll tell him what you've done. Their welfare, what they were doing, what crews they were in, whether they were attending regularly, keeping tabs on people. There was far more of a disciplinary role then, far more shouting and screaming, marching them up and down, marked time, into the BSM's office for a bollocking. Uh, yeah, they'd inspect people's kit, make sure it was okay, and they'd clean their boots. They would always try to get away with refusing to shave. Once they'd had a shave with one of my throwaway razors, they generally shaved themselves next time. Generally, the troop commanders were okay. They would let me get on with things, and I would only involve them when they needed to get involved. Once I'd been out and inspected the troop, made sure that people were where they should be, berries were straight, then I would let the troop officer come out, and he would inspect them as well. Then I'd tell him what was wrong with them. Then he'd say, thank you, everybody. 
and away we'd go for the day's training. That's a, a different perspective on officer uh, NCO relationship. Well, no, that's but pretty it, I much, think it's right. It's pretty much the same as when I was in the uh, certainly in basic training. Uh, that was the uh, we you know we we do whatever the the uh, the sergeant would tell us to do, and then the officer would come out and just. <laughs> Inspect, <laughs> and he'd tell him what was wrong with you. Yeah, him. absolutely. I love. I particularly love that line. I want to point out that uh, Ian Oldershaw is now a full colonel, and he would be delighted with your your version of his uh, accent. I don't think you'll find that's a version. I think you'll find that's accurate. <laughs> Probably. Um, now, um, now, the, the point about this is uh, they're not in a long term decline. This is a bit of a dip in form. And at the same time, Peter Stone is actually laying the seeds for a, a revival. Now, what, what one of the biggest seeds of future improvement is a great character. He's a long serving ex regular, and his name was Guy. I, I, I suppose, Guy Robin. That's his Sunday name, Smith. Oh, you're out, you're out of punching range. <laughs> I'm out of punching range. <laughs> Uh, he joins the battery in the summer of 1985. Uh, I said Smudge. That's uh, that was a nickname in your time. Yeah, yeah, Smudge Smith. Yeah, that's exactly what you would have called somebody called Smith. Uh, and he preferred to be known as Smudge, and he'd served many hard years as a regular gunner, an NCO with the First Royal Horse Artillery, and he was to bring a huge injection of practical gunnery experience into the ranks of the South Knots. Yeah, he was rapidly promoted to bombardier. Strange, he hadn't been promoted. I was going to say rapidly, <laughs> uh, and, and he was initially used as an instructor on the battery NCO carder and driving course courses. But his real niche. What do you think his real niche? Should be well as a, a, a gun number one detachment commander in the gun troop. His gun position officer, who was uh, Second Lieutenant John Jackson, yeah. who was another grizzled old veteran, <laughs> saw in Smith or Smudge the chance to decisively drive up the overall standard of gunnery. Now, you, you remembered, I know you have, the gun troop is only a training aid, but it's still for the OPs. That's the function of the battery, remember, those of you who yeah, missed Yeah, they carved out this role in Germany. Observation posts, uh, that's what they are. But uh, it's an important part of the battery. And this is what Second Lieutenant John Jackson, he's another one who's been commissioned from the ranks. He says this, he came in as a regular number one with a good record. He was given the roughest crew imaginable. They were useless. But come first exercise, they were the best crew. He drove his crew very hard, but he was as hard on himself as on them. Aye. Well, I'm not quite so sure as we'll find out that he was as hard on himself. I mean, he wasn't. Smudge Smith swung into action almost immediately. He insisted his men wear the proper active service webbing and he specially adapted his gun, the camouflage nets and Bedford gun toa. Not tower, Gary. No, to ensure maximum speed and efficiency in dropping into action. Now, he also began training his gun team in the murky mysteries of accelerated gun drills and laying. Yeah, this is shortcuts. This is something that, not in the gun but uh, the gun drill book, this is this is things he'd learned from experience. Shortcuts make a difference in, in a competitive element. And a competitive element. And what is the army, we always say? Competitive. Damn, I was hoping you mispronounced it. So what does Smudge Smith say? You are playing the part. I'm looking forward to hearing what accent, given that you might one day meet him and he has a violent character. <laughs> I was coming in and out of action, first in and first out most of the time, first to respond to a fire. I've always found that's the golden rule of an artilleryman. Rounds on the ground, get them down because somebody's in danger. Yeah, he, now he's using old army methods. Now, as we as we were looking at this, uh, you you countless times said this reminded you of the sort of NCO you encountered and brutalised you. <laughs> <laughs> um, he's he's really he's, there's an urgency about him, isn't there? Did you yeah, know that? but sometimes that's a little intimidating, <laughs> particularly for those unable to respond quickly or well enough as Lance Bombardier Dave Young discovered when he was posted to his gun detachment. Yeah, I want to make it quite clear, Dave Young's not a shy retiring flower. <laughs> anyway, he says this. Aye, he was an aggressive bloke, loud, aggressive, 
punchy, if you like. Obviously, he'd come from regulars, and he knew what he was doing. He'd scream and shout at you, get that wheel off, get the cabinet off, stop acting like a fanny. Once you'd stopped and, and got 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 your, got into your positions on the gun, he'd come round. Why didn't you do this? What's that with you? He'd probably thump you one. Not in the face, full on. Fair dudes, Gary, no. <laughs> but he'd punch you in the back. <laughs> in the kidneys. <laughs> He, he was like that. If he didn't, if he didn't lie you or you upset, he wouldn't care two buggers about giving you a good smack in the mouth. So he would punch you in the face. But if you did your job and didn't backchat him when the job needed the accents, he'd be changing. Job needed to be done, and he'd get on great with it. Just remembered which accent I was employing. And also, Smudge Smith appears to have come from London. I didn't realise that. I'll, I'll, no, he obviously. is from. He, I think he's a Derby County, but, but no, or is he not, not your from, accent? He's I, not. I do remember that uh, if you get it wrong, whether it's Derby County or not. I should imagine he gets upset. Now, another regular who joined the battery in these years was Bombardier Andy Bushnell, uh, a specialist command post AC, meaning assistant. Now, Bushnell observed, and as I've said on a number of occasions, soldiers observe a lot, that there was a little bit more than threats and controlled violence behind Smith's success in motivating his gun detachment. And this is what Bombardier Andy Bushnell of the command post 425 troops says. I used to look after them, buy them loads of fresh food. No, that's you. Sorry. I was all excited, Gary. They used to look after them, buy them loads of fresh food, beers and that, packs of sausages and bacon so that they had a hot dog or bacon butty in the morning. He used to get up an hour before anyone else, sort himself out, get all his lads up, washed and breakfasted. He's sitting there having a fag. Everything's packed away and everybody else was having their breakfast. He was on the ball and he slowly passed his experience down to all three or four guns. Now, I want to make it quite clear, partly for reasons of self-preservation, he's a brilliant soldier. Some of his methods will be controversial as the 80s and 90s go on, but he's a brilliant soldier. Brilliant. Yeah. For the time. And every old gunner's trick was wheeled out so that they could get an edge in the competitions. Now, whether it was cheating, bending the rules, or intelligent preparations is a bit of a moot point. It certainly is. And let's go back to Lance Bombardier Dave Young, 425 Troop. If we knew it, last next hour or so, we were going to get <laughs> ceasefire, which is pack up and go. We'd make sure everything was away. We'd do all the little cheats to get ready. Get that away, get this done, just in Clip that ready. Aye. And we were all at our post ready. So as soon as it came over, cease fire. Your hands were on it. The others weren't like that. Did he have relatives in Scotland? (laughs) (laughs) Now, his aim was to establish a sort of band of brothers within the gun detachment. In the quiet moments and longueurs inevitable on exercises, he would do almost anything to prevent his gunners getting bored. Uh, this is Dave Young again. It was a smudge thing, aye. In a, in a lull of firing, he'd get bored. Smudge would say, crew fight. <laughs> We'd all dive on, get each other in the in the floor, dead legs, smacked it, stomach, punched an arm or back. Sometimes you'd get hurt, <laughs> seriously hurt. Sometimes it was good for morale <laughs> and you'd have a laugh. <laughs> mm. Now, this is an environment you might be more familiar with than me. Yeah, it wasn't quite so blatant as just diving around having fights. We used to do something called murder ball with big medicine balls and you'd be sitting on the floor and throwing the bloody thing at each other. That's PE, Gary. Yeah. (laughs) Now, the inner sanctum of Smith's gun team was invaded only at your peril. I think that's an understatement. He was a firm believer of the sanctity of the gun pit underneath the camouflage nets. Oh, Now, you invaded this at your peril, for it traditionally indicated a clear sign of disrespect for the number one. Yeah, not many not many people took it as seriously as he did, though. And this is bom- uh, bom- uh, Bombardier Smudge Smith of 425. I was, oh, gonna, what? Just, I was thinking of the beer then. Can you remind me what his Sunday name was? Um, Guy Robin Smith. That's you smacked when you meet him. <laughs> Aye, when you put your gun net up, everything that happens under that gun net is is the responsibility of the number one. So anyone coming within that area, they have to ask permission. Only two people don't have to ask, the section commander and the gun position officer. Anyone else got talked to? 
That included the RSM and the CO. They'd come up to the back of the net and say, permission to come on your platform, number one? You'd say, yes, quite welcome. I'd warned them, never come near my gun. One day, the OPs were being the enemy, and they were going to attack us. Captain Bill Harriman came running into my gun. I stood up, threw him into the camouflage net. That tangled him up so he couldn't get away, and I generally slapped him around a bit, round the face, played with him. He was screaming, and I let him go. From that day, my gun never got attacked by the OPs again. Now, Bill Harriman, he's the guy from Antiques Roadshow now. Uh, does the weapons. Have you seen him on it? I have uh, seen him, yes. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if he remembers that fondly, that incident. I wonder if he re- remembers that lesson. <laughs> now, quite soon, Smith was routinely winning the best gun awards within the battery. Oh, uh, yeah, and I want to make it clear again. He's forging a gun team in his own image, uh, um, but uh, he does have to tailor it a bit because are these regulars? No, and the new territorial environment in which he finds himself, isn't really used to this sort of behaviour. And this is once more Bombardier Smudge Smith, 425 Troop. I had to learn that these guys were TA soldiers, not regulars. They'd been at work all day. I learned very quickly because I was a TA soldier and I was knackered. I was coming here and I'd been shoveling stone all day on the railway for eight hours. So I can't expect guys to switch over from being civvies to soldiers within seconds. I used to get hold of them, hold them and say, this is the way you do it. I was forever repeating myself. Once you get them through the gate, you can do whatever you like to them. They love it. To keep them coming through that gate, you've got to make sure that when you've done with them, you treat them nice. Buying them beer, having a good chat with them, having a giggle. Having a giggle is half of soldiering. It doesn't matter a fuck what happens in the middle. As long as you send them home with a smile on their face, they'll come back. Do you recognise that? Is uh, having a giggle? Half- having a giggle, having a laugh is part of the, the... Well, I'd say it's a big part, certainly, of, of when you're training. Basic training most certainly is. And smoking. Giggling and smoking. Smoking, giggling and sex. Oh, no, sorry. One of them may be a lie. <laughs> well, you married at 19... <laughs> Uh, yes, I was 18. <laughs> so that's the end of your sex life for a while. <laughs> now, even the uh, normally uh, fairly oblivious uh, OP officers, they're the people, they're, remember, they're the real unit. The gun team is just, the gun uh, battery is, the gun troop is just a training aid. They notice the difference that Smith's making to the gun troop. They really are. And Troop Sergeant Major Ian Aldershaw, he, he was uh, <laughs> he was quickly made aware of Smudgy Smith's presence in more ways than one, as you're about to relate in your guide as Troop Sergeant Major Ian Aldershaw. Although you said exactly, it must be for a very similar area. Cause the voice is very similar to Smudgy's. Aye, Bombardier now, Guy Robin Smith. Be, they all seem to be from Lancashire, don't they? His Sunday name, Smudge, made a dramatic difference. I remember the impact he had on me when he grabbed my bollocks for the first time. You knew he was a bit of an animal, but there was another side to him. He cared about things, and he cared about his men more than anyone else had ever done on the guns. His whole team would be in all the time. They would all attend. Although I was an outsider, you knew something was different. He was shouting at people. Everything was more efficient. He was preparing his kit before he went. The feedback we were getting on the OPs was that he was always first in action, always first out of action. Smith took it to another level. He was the guy who went the extra nine yards. You did see a noticeable difference. People were fed up of him winning best gun competitions and eventually the gun number ones realised they had to get off their asses and move themselves on. He was a massive influence on the guns. Aye. Well, at that point, we'll have a let's think about the difference Smudge Smith made, Gary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. During this period, 2nd Lieutenant Jeremy Higgins was attempting to square the circle of his shocking personal mathematical <laughs> skills... And map reading. <laughs> ...with learning his assigned duties as a command post officer. Yeah, now, he too <laughs> noticed the difference in the overall attitude of all of the gun troop. Yeah, this is the spreading of one person's influence, and I think it's important. We began, and he says this, we began to take a lot more pride in the way the guns came into action. Before, there wasn't a, a huge sense of urgency. No camouflage. Now the guys have got cam camouflage. The guns are beginning to compete against one another. There's much more tactical awareness of what's going on. And the guys are getting hungry to develop these these those those skills. We've taken on a guy called Bombardier Smith. That's Smudge Smith. And he was just so much better than everybody else, years ahead of everybody else in terms of his skills, his motivation, and his drive. The others wanted some of it as well. He was a role model in terms of being the first into action, the first to get the adjustments, and the first out of action. Mind you, he was quite a rough diamond. <laughs> I think that's an understatement, isn't it? Yeah. Now, the dismissal by Major Peter Stone, and this is quite unusual, of Colonel Roy Myford. Yeah. Uh, he was an active captain because he was admin officer. He's basically a civilian, but he uh, he's very influential man. We br- did briefly mention him. He'd been very popular, and uh, and it did cause some resentment in the battery, didn't it? It did. The resentment curdled when the replacement proved even worse in the role. Yeah, Myford had been popular, and for a little while, morale undoubtedly slumped in the officers' mess. Yeah, the, the thing is that Peter Stone thought Myford was losing effectiveness. And, and this is a, a moot point, as we've said before. That's twice we've had moot points. Uh, yeah, we'll have to look up a different word to moot. Yeah. I moot, you moot, we moot. And this is Captain Chris Houghton. Houghton! A 426 troop. We had reached a peak and we were now starting to go downhill. We're all tired, I think, because we'd done such a lot under Mike Parker and Tim Richmond. We'd cleared the floor, don't forget. People were getting older because that's six years. Wives, girlfriends, children, all that sort of thing take a toll. (laughs) Terrible. All those things are terrible. More demands on their time at work. There was less time for TA. All these things seemed to coalesce at the same time. Attendance was becoming more erratic. We were going downhill. Well, let's, we're back to that theme again. Now, Peter Stone, he's aware of that. He's assessing it logically, and uh, he, he tries to sort out, and he, he knows why. He works out what's going wrong, doesn't he? And this is what he says. Uh, Major Peter Stone, he says, It was a bit like a football team. They, they'd been very good champions, but the same players two years later were not able to perform at the same level. Reminds you of anyone? Liverpool. Now, I readily accept that some of that was the leadership. I'm not a Tim Richmond. That was not easy, and one does not 
does, does not get any points for popularity for trying to sort out a situation like that. That put a bit of a damper on things. But we met our British Army of the Rhine commitments and the reports back from our clients were broadly pretty satisfactory. So don't get the impression the place was falling apart because it wasn't. And as I say, in the background, you've got to remember Smith's improving the gun troop, which isn't their main function, but no. is nevertheless important. And despite the overall health of the battery and the obvious reasons for the problems that were afflicting it, there was some champing at the bit from some of the officers. Now, Peter Stone was also having increasing personal difficulties, balancing the twin difficulties of work commitments and his responsibilities to his family. Yeah, I'm quite sympathetic to this because he's, he's an intelligent man, he spots it, and he says this. I would describe the TA as a pretty selfish hobby, frankly. The TA attracted some people who were off the end of the scale to some extent. People I would describe as army barmy. <laughs> You've got a few natters. you also got some people who perhaps because of their character already suffered a breakdown of family life. And you got others whose wives or girlfriends got increasingly fed up of the fact that they were forever away at weekends and <laughs> who ditched them as a result. Uh, and that's quite common. While the official commitment was for four nights camp and about 12 other days a year, I would think the average attendance by those who were active members of the South Nottazars would be 40 days or more. It was a hell of a time commitment and family life tended to suffer accordingly. And we know because uh, this, this podcast takes, what, well, it takes 50 days, doesn't it, to, to act, just to record it. And actually, I'm not comparing this with being a, a TA soldier. I just want to make that clear. I was a well, we don't wear putties. No. Now, in addition to the pleasures and pressures of family life, Peter... Ple pleasures and pressures? Uh, Peter Stone also had to endure a relocation of his work to London from 1986. That's well, that's... Mm. And soon he was feeling the pressure. The constant travelling to and from London to meet his commitments was gruelling. And, 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 and then what happens is his employers step in and they say, come on, sunshine. As they would. Can you concentrate your energies on your work? And uh, it brings, he, he comes to us. His period of command is slightly prematurely closed, ends. Uh, and this, this leads to a bit of a problem because there's no obvious successor at that time. You know that succession planning goes on. If someone leaves early, it can catch you a bit on the hop. And Peter Stone says this. We came to the conclusion, Colonel James Gunn, the Brigadier Chilwell and myself, that perhaps the best candidate would be Major Bob Watson if he could be persuaded to take it on. He was a very sound ex-regular who'd left the army to settle in Nottingham with a full regular upbringing and standards. And to some extent, that was the well, that was what the South Knots were seen to be needing at the time. Tell me a bit about him. Well, Major Bob Wilson, he'd... Watson, uh, Watson, Watson. Sorry, Watson. Why did I say Wilson? Bob Wilson. Bob Watson. Wilson, yeah. <laughs> and, Major, and Chesterfield. Major Bob Watson had, of course, already served a stint as the regular training officer with the South Knots Hussars, and that was between 1983 and 1984. I think we mentioned him briefly, yeah. Yeah, we did. Now, as he was working, <coughs> excuse me, as you said, in Nottingham, in retrospect, he was a fairly obvious candidate for the position of commanding officer. Although... Uh, he was tainted by his history as an ex-regular. He already knew the South Knots' arts inside yeah, and out. Is, is that taint? Is that right? But the idea is that you should have a TA man, an out-and-out -out TA man command the battery. But, yeah, sorry. And this is what Major Robert Watson, who was sometimes known as Bob Wilson, uh, of headquarters said... I'd always intended to join the Territorial, territorial Army when I left the regular army. But it's the same old thing. You get wrapped up in your new surroundings and then you sort of lose the habit, as it were. So I hadn't sought to rejoin the TA and I was actually approached by the Honorary Colonel James Gunn to see if I would consider coming back as battery commander. There wasn't anyone homegrown that was ready to take over from Peter Stone. If not born and bred, I was at least adopted by the South Nazis, so I was part of the family in a way. I was very flattered, and it kicked me up the arse to rejoin the Territorial Army. Oh, yeah. He was a nice guy. He, he, he took command of the South Nazis in July 1987. Uh, now, it, this, his period of command is, is basically, steady as we go! <laughs> He's trying to stabilise the battery uh, before moving, as we always say, Gary, onwards and upwards. And this is what he says. 
I don't think when I started I had a huge ambition to take the battery anywhere that it hadn't been, except trying to get the balance right to establish a reputation which recognised the battery for what it could do in terms of military work, but also have a darn good time socially. Because in reality, the two things go hand in hand if you want to recruit people. There was still somewhat of a hangover from some officers playing rather harder than they worked. No pun intended there with but he's Uh, right you've got to have something to attract them you have now another new arrival this part this is all part of setting up the basic structure was another senior NCO and this is the point you make countless times senior NCOs are really important to you it's not the CO necessarily that drives it Um, and they're often much loved they are uh, yes, <laughs> yes. Well, Smudge Smith, even yeah. Now he's done great things for the guns. But what about what? Another chap arrives from the first RHA. This is the link we talked about that that endures with the first RHA. All uh, and, and a, a new one arrives in May in nineteen eighty seven. Who is this masked figure? Well, it's uh, Sergeant Stevie Wake, uh, who's going to act as a. PSI, and it was to What's PSI uh, mean, uh, uh, public service insurance. Berman staff instructors. (laughs) And uh, he was to... You know that. ...to greatly help 307 Battery achieve efficiency in another field. Wake, he was satisfied with the state of the guns, but as an expert in MT, that's motor transport, he was horrified by the... uh, Aegean stables? I I think he means historic... It's, state of them, doesn't he? Well, yeah. It's, it's it, don't you remember that you from when you did classics at uh, school uh, <laughs> when Hercules has to clean out the Augean stables and they've they've got they're just up their arse and shit. Yeah, our classics was how to nick bikes and <laughs> stuff like that. Now he discovered uh, in the state of the garages the, the mess and the uh, improper vehicles lurking within. Oh, you, vehicles are not on the strength then, yeah. Now that he, was, by the way, South Nuts is off. Remember in the second yeah, World yeah, War, yeah. they nicked everything that moved. Now he knew that nothing would happen without his direct action, so he just grit his teeth and began the grueling process of reorganising the whole of the MT section to get it up to the required standard. Yeah, it took him long months. It's hard work, and, and we want to pay tribute to him. Uh, uh, they, 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 uh, they had 14 Land Rovers, four ferrets, that's a, a sort of armoured car thing that's used for the OP parties, three uh, 432 APCs, again, same, three Saxons, not sure what they are, and seven Bedford lorries. We know what they are. <laughs> um, uh, he, he works hard, he plays hard, and he has a good time with the South Nottesars. Uh, and he, he starts to go native, as so many of the PSIs do. What do I mean by that? Uh, well, the, he starts to take sides sometimes against some of his fellow regular PSIs, which would be unusual. Yeah. Now, um, uh, we, we've got no quotes from Anissa, but uh, let's move on to what happens. Uh, you, 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 every, every few years you get, uh, you get replacement officers in. Are they, do they fit? Well, this is the issue with the TA, isn't it? They're not really soldiers, but they're playing at soldiers. They're, Some of them are, yes. Yeah, they're men obsessed with the image rather than reality of soldiering. Now, Tim Richmond had cleared out many of the last batch. Remember, they had cravats and things. Yeah, but now their spiritual brothers were back again. And this is Captain Ian Cunningham once more. Some of the new officers started to go more down the original road of smart parties, balls and wearing uniforms. Things tended to move on in waves. A wave of people came in during Major Bob Watson's period of command who were trying to revive yeomanry traditions. There wasn't a divide as such, but there was a definite divergence of interest. Yeah, because <clears throat> um, Ian Cunningham's in the warry bunch and these people are more about appearance. Uh, now, however... The gunnery and MT situation, are they improving because of officers? Well, they're rapidly improving because of the NCOs, I think. Yeah. But is that the purpose of the battery, the MT and the... Um, no, and- you've made the point a number of times today. The purpose was to provide the OP teams for the regular regiments uh, in Germany. Yeah, that's it. Uh, now, at this time, it's true that 307 regiment, OP, t- 307 battery, sorry, uh, OP teams and their forward observation officers, they're getting pretty good, well, all right, acceptable reports uh, from their regular units are attached to on the summer camps. Uh, now, uh, but uh, there, are, there are more cynical eyes 
other that uh, at work here. And, and and who's more cynical, do you think, than the hardened NCO uh, as he gazed on it? And you're going to tell us what good old Troop Sergeant Major Ian Aldershaw, uh, once again in your wonderful voice acting. Aye. Aye. The difference with the large exercises in Germany is that you can be absolutely appalling at getting the shells on the ground, but you're never going to know that because they were all dry, so there was no live firing. So as long as you could bullshit the guy you were with, and as long as your crew kept you all on the nets and you were doing all the things you should be doing, you could be a superstar. Ah. Annual camp set on a hillside in Otterburn with live shells going down would expose you far more than Germany. Germany was about you talking a good war, being in the right place, being on the nets when you should be and doing the job. It was never about whether your fire plan would work. You might be firing at the wrong people, but you never know that. A bad officer could look really good, especially if he had got a good crew. In a lot of ways, they didn't have the skills as an FOO, uh, it's forward observation officer. Uh, the main reason was there were so many of them. If we went away on a firing weekend with six OP teams, bearing in mind only one team could fire at any one time without guns as a training aid, you would have to, you would have to wait for your turn. You could be lying under your canvas for five or six hours before you got a shoot, and you might only have one in a day. So you'd have half an hour to prove whether you could do it, and if you didn't get it right, you didn't get an opportunity to go again. Ian Cunningham was one of the best FOs. He was well liked by his men, had a good relationship with infantry units. He was scruffy, wore what he wanted. A little bit of a mixture of old school South Knots Hussars. I'm a cavalry officer and I do what I want, but also someone who'd got intelligence and common sense. That was quite rare in the officers. Did you find that in your time? No. You admired your officers? I admired them immensely. <laughs> I got very close to one. We don't have that story again, are we? Now, um, the, the whatever the I mean, so the officers vary in competence and credibility as officers. Um, it's also becoming apparent something's happening in the late eighties. What's that? Well, the whole business of OP work was becoming harder. Skills that once could be taught in a matter of days when they are mutating into complex disciplines that demanded hard work concentration, and a natural ability if they were to be mastered. So, so let, let's have Ian Aldershaw again, uh, Troop Sergeant Major, sorry, uh, to, 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 to explain what he means. What, 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 what do we mean? Observation post work in the 1980s began to get very complicated. The introduction of new radios going from Larkspur to Klansman, the introduction of new OP equipment, ground radar, thermal imaging systems, all these things being introduced that were complicated pieces of kit. Add on to that the ability you need to have as a signaller, as an OP-AC, as an FOO, the knowledge of an all-arms battle, and it was just getting more and more difficult to produce people who could do it. People who could effectively be good acts, good officers, good signalers. They were less and less on the ground. People were beginning to suffer because they were not good at it, and so people would leave. We were putting them under more and more pressure. Yeah, so if they're under pressure, some of them fold and leave, yeah? Why uh, wouldn't you? Now, um, uh, the, the complexities, uh, it's not only the forward observation officers, uh, off, off, Forward observation officers' skills. It's quite difficult to say, yes, isn't it? Yes, it is. Uh, that, that are being called into question. Uh, they, they, he's mentioned it. They need the assistance. The, the assistance have to be good. And again, let's let's hear what uh, troops are. He's a great witness. Troop Sergeant Major Ian Aldershaw has to say. The troops were becoming very, very stagnant. There was not much coming through in talent. It was becoming more and more a technical job, certainly for OPX to be any good you would have to be in training for quite a number of years to take you to a reasonable level of ability. We had a lot who were reasonable, but not many who were very, very good at what they did. The AC was a far more skillful, skillful role than the OP officer. The AC ran the show. 
You could have a very poor officer who would shine given a good act because he would point him in the right direction and tell him what to do. It was my role to look after the acts and the signalers and push on their training. The officers come and go because they had a set career route. Young FOOs would come to me for a bit of training. So the officers would come to him for training as well. That's interesting. And and again, he he's got his perception. The officers would not agree that they they were more the, the not well. Some of them would not agree that the acts were more skillful than they would they. But it's a real problem. A real problem. Uh, all this extra paraphernalia uh, uh, that, that that they're getting. All these things he mentioned: the ground radar, the sausage radar, whatever things. They're, they're all uh, well. They're, Loads more new technology. What other problem might that be? What exactly can you think that might be a problem for the OP parties? Well, new technology may have been useful, but who exactly was going to carry these heavy pieces of kit? Yeah, man portable. Yeah, that's a relative term, isn't it, Pete? Yeah. yeah. My, my tape record is man portable. Now, this is once more Troop Sergeant Major Ian Aldershaw. The laser rangefinder was mounted on a tripod. It had an optical crosshair sight and you lined that onto your target. Pressed an electronic button and it would come back with a range in metres from where you were to the target. You used it in conjunction with a portable azimuth which would give you a bearing to the target. Is an azimuth that sort of thing that positions the stars, isn't it? I've no a idea. Celestial body, I, I think. I think it might be. So if you knew where you were on the map, you could work out an accurate grid reference for the target. It was a massive leap forward, but the cost was how man portable this stuff was. It was difficult to carry this stuff to your OP. Bearing in mind, uh, you wouldn't have your vehicles. Load everything on your back and away you go. Walking with three of you with all your own kit plus two radios to hide all your rations and then you're starting to lug lasers, ground radar and image intensifiers. Aye, aye. Well, you know, um, that. <laughs> You've got a tactical situation. You've got all this gear. Sometimes it's just not feasible to do all this, is it? Um, and uh, th- th- you, you can imagine, you can only use it in a defensive scenario um, where you can drop it off by your MT because you're going to be staying there at their leisure, so to speak. That you're in position. Um, now, this meant that not only were the OP team struggling on the ground... But the earth was actually moving beneath ah, their feet. The earth was moving beneath their feet. Now, in the late 1980s, the mechanised units of the British Army of the Rhine in Germany began to introduce the Warrior as their new tracked vehicle. It's just after my time, that. Uh, which was intended to supersede the 432 APC. That was in your time. <laughs> as the OP vehicle working alongside those batteries equipped with the AS-90 self-propelled gun. It's a bangy thing, isn't it? It is a bangy thing. Now, the Warrior was a complex piece of equipment and, and there was a feeling in the regular army that the TA simply wouldn't be able to handle it. Now, then there's a final b- uh, boot comes thudding into the South Nazars. They decide that the regular army units would only have two OP parties per battery. Uh, but the South Nots are the third OP party so what what's going to happen well once more the south not Czars are left without a real role and ah! uh, <laughs> that lays them naked before ah. the next defense review seeking cuts and in life one thing certain pete what's that there always be another defense review and what will that lead to cuts and this is major robert watson once more the Major General Royal Artillery in Germany made the decision that the OP batteries weren't going to get the warrior and were therefore not in a position to support mechanised units in Germany. There and then our role disappeared. We did not have a role. We were not allowed to go to Germany. So I had to keep my people interested without the Germany role they had had in the past. Well, this is this is hopeless. They're, they're, they're just without a role. This is, this is the end of an era, isn't it? Wow. Um... Uh, sum it up for me, the era. What is the era? Well, over the two decades, two, two. over the two decades, two. Two. the OP teams had performed a vital role and at the same time thoroughly enjoyed their oh, detachments. Oh, come on, give me an example of them enjoying themselves, Gary. Well, 
the sheer zest of being away on exercise, far away from tedium of day-to-day civilian reality, was quite a relaxant at times. <laughs> Were they as relaxed as newts? But above all, two tall tales show that it was quite amazing what There's you could see. There's just one tall tale. Why two? Why are you saying two? There's only one. One tall tale. <laughs> it's quite amazing what you could see if you look upwards and this is once more our favourite Troop Sergeant Major Ian Oldershaw aye there was a problem with one of the guys who went into the Nathy bar found it very very cheap and began to drink the wrong quantity of the wrong spirit probably did you, ever, did probably, you ever do that it's called Retsipus I think it was found by the roaming guard up a tree I did that his explanation was that he tried to find the gate to get out and he couldn't so he thought he'd climb this tree and jump over the fence. He'd actually climbed up the tree so far, and as the branch split into two, he'd wedged himself there and passed out. The guard saw this bloke hanging from the tree, absolutely pissed out of his brains, and had the problem of getting him down. Were you ever in that state? <coughs> My first night in Germany, I was in that state. Tell a story, Gary. That could be the second story. No, Pete. Now, this tale of drunkenness may not encompass the full military value of the OPs or the South Nazis' role in helping to, sw- to thwart the Soviet menace to Western Europe. Yeah, but we feel that somehow it sort of just encapsulates all the fun <laughs> they had whilst carrying out their duties to their country. And that's part of it, isn't it? That's what the, the, the TA have to do. They've got to come... They've got to... I think that chap said they have to volunteer... Every morning, every and, yeah. and and they've got to have some fun. It's but it's still a serious role they were carrying out. But now they haven't got a role. So is this the end of our story? Is this South Dutchess finished? Are they cut in the next cut? Well, and also with them not being there, surely the Soviets invade on sort of seven o'clock on a Friday night. Oh no, no! What's going to happen next, Pete? I don't know. Can't remember. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the show. Blah, blah, blah. If you'd like to support blah, us, blah, you can now buy us a coffee. Blah, blah, Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash PGMH. Or visit www.blahblahblahblahblah. And we'd be jolly grateful. Cheers. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?